Thanks for being with us. Well, some ads on Craigslist are getting a lot of attention. They are ads for rental units, but saying things like utilities included except internet, TV, laundry available, no pets, no smoking, no partying, vegetarians only. And then this one goes on to say in brackets, no eggs, meat, fish, or seafood. So if you thought you could slip in being a pescatarian, think again. Is this legal, though? That's just one of several ads on Craigslist that says they would like a vegetarian to be the tenant. Well, let's bring in Hunter Boucher, Director of Operations at Landlord BC. Hunter, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me today. Have you heard of this happening very much, that somebody puts that in the rental ad that you must be vegan or vegetarian? Uh, from time to time, we have seen, uh, much like, like you have on, on, on various listing sites, ads such as this. Certainly, it, it does happen on occasion. And is it legal? Um, it's, it's less a question about whether or not it's legal and more of a question of whether or not it's enforceable. Um, hmm. So uh, when we look at whether or not something is legal, we have to look at what laws might apply. And there are several laws that could potentially apply. There's the Human Rights Code, Personal Information Protection Act, and the Residential Tenancy Act. The Human Rights Code protects against discrimination based on a lot of things, but it doesn't talk specifically about diet. So it doesn't really fall under that, uh, though, of course, that could tie into other things that are protected under that, such as religion, um, ancestry, place of origin, um, and such. Certainly some of those are going to tie into diet as well. Um, under the the privacy legislation, it might be something that is questionable as to whether or not you can really ask that question. Um, the legislation regarding privacy issues really talks about reasonability, and the question becomes, is it reasonable in an average tenancy to ask someone what their diet is? Um, I think most would argue that's not a reasonable thing, so it probably wouldn't uh, be considered okay under that. Uh, and then under the Residential Tenancy Act, having a rule on that, uh, having a rule in a tenancy agreement saying, the tenant must be vegetarian and only cook vegetarian food um, or vegan food, um, likely would be considered unconscionable under the, the Residential Tenancy Act. I mean, we're talking about <laughs> what you put in your body. Is this a slippery slope and there will be other things that you can't do because of this? Well, again, I don't think it's enforceable in any way whatsoever. So I don't know that it's a, it's a slippery slope. If it were allowed, then, then certainly that might be considered a slippery slope, and it certainly would be problematic. Um, but again, any type of rule like this prohibiting what tenants do in their unit when it comes to what they're putting in their body, uh, what they're eating, uh, is generally something that isn't going to be enforceable like that. Uh, earlier, Jill brought up a really good point that um, when we were scour uh, scouring Twitter, <laughs> that people say that they're vegan or vegetarian because they're trying to get into, to get into a residency. Um, how weird is that? <laughs> But it's that certainly, you know, it, it is a very tight market at the moment. Um, but, you know, it comes down to just ensuring that landlords are, are educated on what is considered reasonable uh, in situations like this. And, and I would say that things like this are generally not considered reasonable. Would it be different, I suppose? And we know the rental market, uh, people in many cases are having a tough time finding a place, finding a place that's affordable. Would it be different if it was, say, the basement suite in a house was for rent and the ten the landlords lived upstairs and they're 
what they're actually saying is we don't want anyone downstairs who's going to be cooking meat or is going to be cooking things that are that we're going to be able to smell from upstairs. So would that be different, do you think, or or even be able to be enforced as opposed to somebody's renting out a suite in a building or a standalone suite? Uh, well, certainly when it comes to um, certain rules, there's, there's, you know, can be a difference in the type of unit, but, um, you know, with, with that being said, again, it, it comes down to, to being able to prove that this rule is really necessary in the tenancy <laughs> to prove that there's some type of loss if the tenant were to uh, to breach that type of rule, and I think that those would be difficult things to to substantially prove in in situations like this. Um, I, I I highly doubt at the residential tenancy branch that an arbitrator is going to look at this and say, yeah, that's a reasonable um, uh, rule or, or clause in this tenancy, um, which which would give them the opportunity to say no, it's not enforceable in this case, or so it's not material to the tenancy. And one of the uh, one of the ads is it's a thousand dollars, and I I'm, I think if I'm reading it right, it says it's a one bedroom suite. Although I'm not sure if it's actually one bedroom suite or a bedroom. Although it does say it's a suite, but this is an ad that says uh, suite for pure vegetarian girl only in Cornerstone Building. That seems like it's extremely specific and not enforceable. Well, we, that certainly, and there isn't like that, would certainly need to be, be looked at. Certainly, because that very clearly in a situation like that, we would likely be looking at contraventions under the Human Rights Code. With that being said, you know, it, it's hard to say whether or not that's a suite, and it really is actually a private suite, or if it's shared accommodation, which is something that is completely different. But. Wouldn't it be dependent on the landlord having proper ventilation if, if, if you know, these smells of this, these cooking smells are bothering them? Well, and that's that's exactly it. It, it comes down to if you if you choose to to rent out but your your, your basement, uh, so long as what the tenant is doing isn't damaging the property in some way, which is something that you know could happen if the tenant were say smoking in their unit, for example. Uh, there's very clearly a loss there because we know that the, that that smoke can cause damage. Um, but whereas with cooking, um, you know, the odors of cooking, um, even if we don't necessarily like the smell of what someone else is cooking, uh, isn't necessarily um, going to damage damage the property. And you know, with proper ventilation, shouldn't really generally be be much of an issue. Maybe it's not even about the cooking, and maybe it's just a philosophical debate. <laughs> and and you know, very very possibly. But the the reality is, residential tenancies aren't really uh, an avenue to to push philosophical philosophical debates onto onto other people. Right. So even if it was the case of the landlord, and again, I'll use this scenario, if it's a landlord or so somebody on the main floor, they're renting out the lower floor, and that person is a pure, purely vegetarian, maybe vegan, and the, the argument being that maybe they're very religious or spiritual, and they're very much opposed to animals and eating animals, they couldn't possibly stand to have somebody in their home doing that. Would that be enough of an argument? Or again, maybe they shouldn't be in the landlord situation. It's certainly, that is a question that should be asked. Um, and again, you know, I think that you know there are always going to be occasionally unique situations that require some sensitivity. But uh, at the end of the day, you know, when you're renting out a space to to someone else, it's reasonable to assume that they're going to to live reasonably, which may include eating 
eating meat. Um, so, you know, the the enforceability of any of those types of clauses uh, is is something that I think, again, likely would, would not, not meet the test at the residential fence event by any means. What's the strangest requirement from a landlord that you've seen? Oh, that is hard. Um, <laughs> There's so many. There's too know, many. You, can, you think, can't keep count. <laughs> you know, it, and it's not necessarily. You know, we see a lot of, of of stranger things. Not so much coming from from landlords, but a lot of a lot more in in shared accommodations. Um, and and that's a very different different world altogether, where people are are needing to live together. Um, so looking for kind of a personality meshing there as well. Um, but, um, you know, the reality is most landlords aren't, aren't really concerned what, what their tenants are, are cooking or really what their tenants are doing the unit, so long as they're looking after the unit, relatively clean, respectful, paying the rent on time, all the, the kind of standard hallmarks of, 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 of a tenancy. All right. Hunter, thanks so much for joining us and for setting us straight on what you can and can't request or require as a landlord. Appreciate your time today. Thank you. Have a good day. We are talking about rentals and rental ads where it is in black and white, vegetarians and only vegans apply. Robin Gill is co-hosting today and tomorrow, and we have a lot of callers on the line who want to weigh in on this. Let's start with Jen in Coquitlam. Hey, Jen, go ahead. Hi, uh, landlords, you are taking the Lord part of your title part far too seriously here. Like, <laughs> I'm a longtime landlord, and I'd be mortified if I... Um, you know, put forth some of the rules and regulations that landlords here do. Like, it's just ridiculous. Have you I ever mean, put any rules or, or, or... Yeah, I mean, I restrict the pets thing. It's because we're remote landlords and we just, we can't um, visit our place as often as we'd like to. That's really the only one. Um, I do think that landlords should be able to choose who they rent to and under what circumstances. But come on, like, if you were living somewhere... Sorry, I'm out of breath. <laughs> I'm working. Um, uh, if, if, you're work- if you're living somewhere with your family and you face these kinds of limitations, can you imagine living under that roof? Like living under those, like having to walk on eggshells all the time? I mean, come on, guys. Like, it's a two-way business. This is not a one-way business. You're not the Lord. Like, if, if someone's renting from you, this is their home while they are renting from you. That's the business transaction that you've agreed to. And so if you are renting to somebody and you're telling them what they can cook and all this stuff like that's ridiculous this is you have to remember this is a two-way street not a one-way street all right jen thanks for that although no walking on eggshells if it's the vegan place because that wouldn't be allowed in there either uh let's go to laura lee in richmond laura lee go ahead hi um with regard to your previous caller she's saying they can't have pets so that's putting in their own values and uh, preferences as well. I am a landlord, have been for 16 years. I'm also licensed to do property management in BC. I require them to be vegetarians. They can be vegan if they like. I'm not going to work my butt off to provide a property for someone to live in where they practice something totally opposed to my values. And I've checked with residential tenancy. I have it as clauses in my lease, and they said it's just like smoking. I can require that they not do a particular activity. And so you have it in your agreement that vegetarians only? Yep. Have done all along. No problem. You've never had a problem. You've never had a problem. 
nope, residential tenancy. They also don't have a problem with it. So, And is it the odors it. That, that go with the cooking, or what no, is it? No, this is a standalone apartment. It's because I have a belief system and a system of values. Similar to other people, they may say, someone else may believe, oh, that everyone has a right to their own gender identity. Other people may disagree with that. So, you know, I believe that we should not be consuming animals. And so I'm working really hard to provide for the place. People's rent doesn't cover the actual cost of a property. You have to work to put into it. And I've got money tied up in it. I want my values reflected in my property. I don't want it to have a history of cruelty. So then, but do you ask other questions too about... I don't even ask. Okay. I I don't have to ask. My ad says vegetarian. The lease says that the person agrees. I'm not asking if they're vegetarian. I've had non-vegetarians live there, but they want to live there and they respect it. And I believe that they do. I'm very careful about the tenants I select. All right. Laura Lee, thanks for the call. Appreciate that. Let's uh, go down the list. And now we are going to John on the North Shore. John, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, yeah, um, yeah. the first lady saying no pets. I have a pet. I find that discriminatory. And by the standards of the laws, it is discriminatory. You can't tell somebody they can't have a pet, I, I believe, right, in B.C.? Um, yeah, you can. But I do... Uh, you you can. That's yes. Unbelievable. Uh, you can in Ontario. Go Ontario. Um, I I I think there's certain instances like dietary because that could also be religious. Um, and if they don't want uh, you know people consuming meat in their house, I think it's totally. I think it should be legal because they you know for whatever reason they don't want meat in their house. That's fine. And I think the government uh, has their nose stuck in there. Uh, too far, and I also believe that if we were to relax a little bit uh, on the, the restrictions you have on landlords, um, I think we'd probably have a bigger selection of rentals. Which, do you mean raising rent and those kind of rules, or which rules? Well, also raising rent. So they're going to do SFU or uh, UBC at 8%, but, but, the, uh, but everybody else is stuck with the, whatever the government says. I think that's kind of discriminatory. That's one, but just opening up what they can, you know, like vegan, or if, if they don't want uh, people smoking pot or whatever, they should have those rights to say it, and, and it's their property, not the government's property. All right, John, thanks for that. So we'll keep on going down the list. I mean, to me, I don't know, Robin, your thoughts on this. The, the, the argument, though, could go the other way. Imagine if the ad said, you must be a carnivore. You must <laughs> eat meat to live in this suite. And, I mean, I don't eat meat, but I cook it for my dogs, so I don't think I would fall into any of these categories. Uh, that's actually a really good point, Jill. I never even thought of that. <laughs> let's, uh, let's keep going down the list of callers. Denise in Vancouver, go ahead. Hi, I am vegan, and I actually feed my dogs vegan kibble as well, and they love it. Um, My husband and I have owned our house for 25 years, and if we were to rent out our suite downstairs, there is no way we would rent it to somebody who uh, was completely against our personal values. Our house is our temple, literally. We have put our hearts and souls into it. It's a, it's a sanctuary for neighborhood birds and, and you name it. And we've got our dogs here. And there is nothing worse than the smell of a sentient being being fried 
uh, sentient being also known as a pig or a cow. Uh, what people might smell as bacon, we smell as a sentient being that was horrifically, had a hor- horrible life, horrifically slaughtered, and is on somebody's plate for no- nothing other than pure pleasure of that person. And I do not want that odor in my house. I don't want it anywhere near me. I wouldn't even have a vegetarian in the house because the dairy industry is just as horrific as the meat industry. So, no, my temple, my home, there are plenty of vegans that share my philosophy that we can share a meal with even because if you're going to share my house and yard, we're going to get along. So, you know, you've got to be somewhere along. You've got to be aligned with our values if we are going to share our beautiful space with you. All right, Denise, thanks for that. We'll leave it there. If you didn't get through, apologies. Call us on the buzz line. Well, earlier today, the federal government announced some more disaster funding, uh, disaster recovery funding for parts of the Fraser Valley that were devastated by that atmospheric river. So what will the money be used for and how much is coming to that area? Well, Ross Siemens is the mayor of Abbotsford and joins us on the line now to talk a bit more about this. Mayor, thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you for having me. The announcement, we know Bill Blair was in BC. He is uh, one of the MPs and uh, the Minister of Emergency Preparedness. So what was the announcement as far as funding and more disaster recovery money coming to the Fraser Valley? Yeah, so I think uh, this um, $567 uh, was announced, and that's going to the province, and then the province... um, divvies it out from there. So some will be coming to Abbotsford. I'm not sure, again, the the details of some of those um, items are with the province at this point. But um, having the Minister of Agriculture there that understands our needs and our issues here is very important. She's also one of our local MLAs. So um, yeah, we've got a a list of priorities that we've been working through. Uh, We've I think we had over 300 sites. We've done about 200, and so that money will, some of that money will be helped uh, as we move forward with those other repairs. And when we look at what's been done, you mentioned the number of sites. So this is the storms, the flooding that hit in November of 2021. And here we are still having this money coming in and going to the repairing. How would you describe kind of the the, the fallout or the remaining uh, fallout from these storms and what still needs to be done? Yeah, well, there's a number of um, bridges uh, that we had to put priorities on. We have permitting that has to happen through uh, Department of Fisheries, um, the Ministry of Environment. So, uh, you know, the main dike breach has been repaired. Um, The culverts, uh, a lot of those have been done. There's still some to be done. There was uh, mudslides in certain areas. I mean, our water system had a uh, one of the supplies over on the um, Lake Norris Creek area. There was a landslide in that area. Um, So some of that money is used um, or has been used to do those repairs and the remaining repairs, um, you know, there's still some ditches um, that need further repairs. There's certain areas that we can't go into without, uh, there's a certain window that'll be August, September, and hopefully we'll get most of that completed this year. Ross, what about the generations of farmers who essentially were running a family business and they were hurt? How will this funding help them? 
Uh, well, some of those farmers, um, they're still, I know, you know a few of them that are still out of their homes because they put their efforts, their recovery efforts went into their farms. I mean, they're living in trailers on their properties right now because they put their efforts into their livestock and their businesses. Um, that shows you the depth of, of um, commitment that they have. You know, we're talking about provincial food security here. So, yeah, there's, uh, you know, some of that funding will come through those, those channels as well and will advocate um, as will you know our our um, MLA and, and agriculture minister so making sure that those folks get the money that they need to get back into their homes how are they surviving if they're living in trailers um yeah I mean they're they're surviving I mean they're they're very resilient I mean it's uh, the, you know, the winds out there this time of year can be pretty brutal um, so yeah they uh, they're doing what they can. With the money now that's come in, I, I think the number is more than $1 billion, all linked to, again, that atmospheric river in November of 2021. Is it your understanding, or is this money also being used as far as shoring up those areas or trying to better protect them for weather like this in the future? Well, we have done... Um, you know, the dike repairs that have been done, I think they're a lot stronger than what... Um, than what was there that has been helpful and then we've actually increased the height um, by about half a meter in some key areas um, as part of this the long-term mitigation and resiliency that money is going to come from a different funding stream Uh, this is recovery money so the long-term mitigation we are working on that Uh, right now we've uh, put up like council has approved a plan that we're working with the province and First Nations on at this point. And what about in the United States? Because certainly when this happened, there was a lot of talk of the Nooksack River and uh, the Nooksack on the U.S. side of the border and the fact that a lot of it was out of the hands of people in, in Canada, people on this side in the Fraser Valley, that it really also depends on what's happening south of the border. Yes, it sure does. And uh, we've talked to Minister Blair today, uh, Chief Silver and I. Uh, Chief Silver actually has family members um, that are part of the Nooksack um, community, and uh, they are elevating this. Uh, We feel that it should be elevated to the Skagit River, Columbia River, to that level of, of importance at the federal level. And so Minister Blair did assure us that they are having those talks with the federal government. We do have um, our staff will be going and has been going to those meetings. And uh, we need to you know put this to that level of importance. I mean, this is provincial food security. It's national um, uh, you know, trade uh, through the Trans-Canada Highway, uh, running through there. I mean, there's some significant challenges on our side of the border that they need to be fully aware of. How long do you think these rebuilding efforts are going to take? Well, the rebuilding, or hopefully this year, uh, when we get that that um, that window of opportunity to get some of those ditches and bridges and things like that repaired um, in that window in October, August to September. Um, you know, one of the challenges we have is that we also, um, in the summer, we also use those ditches and irrigation canals for um, for irrigation. Um, so there's, 
it gets complex, and that's why we had to put priorities on to make sure that we, um, you know, are getting the the, the transit routes and and um, all of those things through there properly, so people can get their um, you know milk picked up and their poultry delivered, their crops to market. So yeah, there's lots of moving pieces to this, and it's it's you know some people say, well, it's just simple, fix this, this, and this, and yes, um, it is simple if you have the money and if you have the right time of year um, because there's a lots of moving pieces that we have to be aware of. And is it time of year then? Because looking at the dates as well, and I think that maybe is some of the pushback or at least some of the questions being, again, this happened in November of 2021. And here we have the minister in town today and and making a big presentation with more funding coming. But uh, like you said before, people are still living in trailers and there is so much work that still needs to be done. It just doesn't seem like there's a lot of urgency. Um, well, an example for the main dike breach, um, they had to start on that later because they needed to keep the water high. They could, they had to close those floodgates um, so that they could keep the water high for irrigation. So they weren't able to do the main dike breach until well into October. Um, they had that window to start uh, at that time. So some of this is so that, you know, farms can continue to manage. Um, some of it is capacity. I mean, the, the construction industry, um, you know, there was a lot of uh, a lot of challenges, so that's why some families chose to to make sure that their livestock and their businesses are up and running, and they could live, you know, could live on site in the trailer. And after, you know, so some of it was uh, choices that people had made to to take care of their livestock first and foremost. Um, so, you know. Some of it has been a lack of, of enough workers to do some of the work. So, you know, there's a lot of moving pieces on here. So I think the, you know, the funding is one component of it. And then finding the, the qualified workers and, and some of those things, um, that's another challenge. And uh, so, yeah, there's, we've also been through a high inflationary time in, with the construction industry. So there's a lot of moving pieces and a lot of variables that uh, lead to some of this. So, you know, th- this is... Um, um, this is a priority for the city, and I believe, you know, when I talk to the provincial government, they say that this is a priority for them as well. And so we're working as hard as we can to to make sure that everybody is rowing in the same direction and, and getting things done as quickly as possible. Do you need more money or more funding announcements? We could always use more funding. Um, yes. <laughs> Short answer is yes. All right, Mayor Ross Siemens, thank you so much for joining us today. Appreciate it. Well, thank you. And, and you know, it's we really appreciate people paying attention because this is the food basket for the province and it's a provincial food security and, and our people are working hard to make sure that everybody can be fed and, and fed with good quality food. So thank you. All right. Ross Siemens is the mayor of Abbotsford. Thanks again so much. Take care. Well, BC Green, Sonia First to Know, has put a call out saying that the government should pilot a four-day work week right across the province, saying it's been done in other jurisdictions and it has shown to give people a better work-life balance. It's helped productivity at companies. So would you be in favour of four days, same pay, just reducing your workload by one hour. Before we get to the open lines, we'll open up the phones. We are going to chat with Richard Zussman about this. He is a global news reporter. He's based at the legislature. Good afternoon, Richard. 
Good afternoon, Jill. Thanks for having me on. Well, thank you for doing this. This is uh, an interesting proposal. What exactly is Sonia First to Know hoping happens here? Yeah, so what the Greens are proposing, and, and they have floated this idea of the four-day work week before, but it was unclear in the past exactly what she hoped the province would do. Now that's coming into focus here. and It's based on a bill uh, that has been proposed in the state of Maryland, uh, calling for a three-year pilot of that shortened work week, as you mentioned, incentivized by a provincial tax break for businesses. And so as part of the pilot, the businesses would be required to report back to the government to determine how the balance reduced work hours and maintained rate of pay and productivity, employee well-being, and employer satisfaction. And then the government would be responsible to report back on that data and findings each year of the pilot, produce a final report, and have an assessment about whether these are the sort of things that government should be supporting or businesses should support. I asked the Premier about this back during our year-end interviews, and he said it's not something the province would consider in terms of public servants working four days a week, but is open to the idea of businesses attempting to do things that allow their employees to strike a better work-life balance uh, and you know learn a little bit from what we discovered during the pandemic in terms of work from home and, and that sort of flexibility that some uh, employees were given. There, there are certainly some businesses where you can't do this, but there are lots of businesses that can. I, I know the UK piloted this with a couple of companies and they're sticking with it. Yeah, and Robin, we're seeing that it, it seems to work in places. Uh, you know, we're, we're seeing some workplaces entirely get away from working in person. We are seeing others, as you mentioned, move towards four days a week, allow for greater flexibility. I, I think the big question for me is what is the role of government here? Like what uh, can the province do to support these businesses? Because there could be an argument made that this is beneficial to business, business just for recruitment, that if you are in a competitive field, that uh, there are ways to offer employees incentives like a four-day work week uh, that allow you to recruit and retain the best workers. And, and we know now it is a worker's market, that there are job opportunities uh, for many in so many sectors because of shortages. And this could be a tool that the private sector uses as recruitment. This goes beyond that in terms of asking government to take a role here in assessing what this looks like and then long-term whether there's a role in terms of tax breaks for businesses that do uh, do this. Because, you know, some of the things we see, and you talk about successes in the UK, we've seen this other places. Uh, we've seen four-day work weeks potentially can lead to lower rates of anxiety and depression. That eases pressure on our healthcare system. Uh, it also takes pressure potentially away from our child care system, uh, where two parents working uh, five days a week, ensures their children are in care five days a week. If those parents potentially offset their four-day work weeks, maybe the child is only in care three days a week. That puts less pressure on that system, allows for more kids to be in care. You factor in all of these things, and it may actually benefit government. Fewer cars on the road five days a week, 
you factor all of these things, and these are all things that could be beneficial to the way that our province uh, operates. Right. So what is the argument then for a tax break for companies? Because like you're saying, it would be an incentive to bring in staff. If productivity does go up, the company's not uh, being penalized for this. They're not losing anything. So why would government be involved and have to give a tax break at all? Yeah, so I think it it comes back to a few of those things I just mentioned, uh, Jill, in terms of a hope that it takes off pressure on other parts of where government spends. So if you look at the large network of things here, if this does indeed provide better mental and physical health, that if you take that extra day that you're not working and you have a few hours of exercise or spend it with your kids, that takes off other pressure points. So by government providing businesses a tax incentive, government actually may be saving money on the healthcare system. Um, if uh, you're not at work five days a week commuting, you're only there four days a week, it eases some of the congestion challenges on infrastructure that over time wears down. Government is very bad deal at looking at these big picture hypotheticals in terms of future health savings, transportation savings. So it may not be a compelling argument, but part of the argument that's been made in other jurisdictions and by the Greens is just that, that, that government invests now in encouraging businesses to do this because it helps our society and our public infrastructure uh, on, on the whole. Interesting. And so if the premier, when you asked the premier and he was saying, well, we're not going to do this in the public service, would the idea be then businesses could apply to be part of a a pilot project or they could do this and then report back? Or how would would it be up to the businesses then, I guess, which ones wanted to participate? Yeah, so it's unclear what sector specifically would be targeted here. But in a pilot in Maryland, Uh, My understanding is from briefly looking at this that uh, they would, uh, businesses that are interested, bring their hands forward. They would have to qualify to participate in the program, and then they can claim the credit against state income tax. And uh, the government would then work with those qualifying um, employers uh, to figure out who um, qualifies for the pilot. And, and there are different ways that you can do a pilot, right? Over a three-year period, you can uh, ensure that um, companies or employers uh, are part of the entire pilot. You could also look at employers for uh, parts of the pilot period and then assess the differences between participating four-day work weeks and not. There are different ways that you can apply pilots to gather the most information to assess whether it works. And, and you'll have, you have to have very specific metrics around what success looks like around work-life balance, uh, mental health, work productivity, those sort of measuring sticks to understand if this is the sort of thing that actually works to hit. What is your intended goal? And is the four-day work week helping you achieve that goal? Hmm. Interesting. And what kind of a response is this getting, uh, this idea floated by Sonia first to know? It's it's funny because this is, again, something the Greens have floated for a while. I think it came up as part of the 2020 election campaign, if I remember correctly, and has lingered since then and sort of gets bandied about and but never taken particularly seriously. We'll see if there's any movement here. It's been a busy day at the legislature. It hasn't been an issue that has been put to government yet in terms of their response. But clearly there's some media attention around this issue. Everybody can see what this looks like, right? You wake up on Friday and you say, oh, 
I have to go to work again today. <laughs> I think people could think about what the idea of four-day work weeks look like. And there's and there's probably people listening right now that are on four-day work weeks. I know it is becoming more popularized, as Robin mentioned, uh, around the world, but also here in this province. The business employers are trying this now. So we'll see. We, we will see. It, it's not one of those issues that the government government's getting a whole lot of pressure on. But it is one of those things where people can think about it, they hear about it, they hear us talking about it, they hear the Greens propose it, and then people get to thinking, maybe it's something I'd be interested in trying. They put pressure on their employer, their employer puts pressure on their advocacy groups, the advocacy groups put pressure on government, and then that's how we end up uh, with policy changes. All right. Well, we'll see what happens next. Richard, as always, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having us. We are uh, talking about this uh, fun and for a good cause initiative. Canadians are being encouraged to take 40 days, 40 items. It's the 40 items challenge. It started this month and it's all for Diabetes Canada. So joining us to talk more about what 40 days, 40 items is all about is Sean Shannon, CEO and president of National Diabetes Trust. Thanks so much for being here. You're welcome. Glad to be here. Well, you're uh, with uh, me and uh, Robin Gill co-hosting the show today as well. We're both very interested in what types of items and how this works. So walk us through how this is all happening. Sure. It's it's kind of a fun spin. We uh, we launched it last year and it met with great success in the marketplace. So we want to bring it back again. Um, some people may not have heard about it yet, but it's, it's kind of a new spin on the old idea of... Um, of course, everybody from time to time realizes that they have very usable uh, clothing, uh, small household items, etc. that perhaps uh, they no longer use and they would like to make a donation to a good cause such as Diabetes Canada. Um, so it's a way of, uh, of taking something that people are generally familiar with, but they may be perhaps think about doing these things on uh, on a weekend. Maybe they say, okay, I'm going to spend a few hours on a Saturday or Sunday and I'm going to put together three, four, five large bags of donations. So this is just a different way to think about it because for some people that might feel a little like a lot of work. Um, And uh, so here's just kind of a different way to think about it is uh, set aside your bag or your box and say to yourself and your family members, how about one one item a day and do that and uh, do it after 40 days and uh, you're going to have quite a good donation. Any specific items that you're looking for? Yeah, we uh, we typically uh, ask for people to donate uh, textiles, which could be everything from clothing. It could be uh, bags. It could be even curtains, shoes, boots, sleeping bags. Anything that would be sort of soft item goods is is one uh, very common category. Uh, we uh, we certainly ask that people only donate something that would be uh, be welcome for a second life, because of course this is is uh, picked up by us, collected. It's, we monetize it for the charity, um, but it does get resold. So, uh, for in other words, if somebody had a pair of old socks with a lot of holes in it, no, that, that wouldn't be what you'd want to donate because, you know, I don't think anybody's going to want to buy a secondhand pair of socks with a lot of holes in it. But if it's in generally good repair, and lots of items that we all have in our closet are, we've just either grown tired of them, maybe uh, grown out of them uh, in some way, shape, or form, maybe got something new for a birthday or over the holidays, and uh, you just kind of know that you don't need it anymore, and it's really just gathering dust inside your closet. 
Early spring cleaning, right? Textiles is one. <laughs> yeah, early spring cleaning, exactly. As I said, uh, some people use things like springtime to uh, be their catalyst, and uh, this is just another uh, kind of another fine idea for people. And we kind of play on the uh, 40 days of Lent uh, Easter period to uh, to just give people another way of thinking of donating, whether it's textiles or we also will. Uh, uh, accept and collect uh, small uh, household items, bakeware, uh, bath items, books, uh, things like this that are generally sort of small and, again, resaleable. So we ask for donors to make that judgment call as, uh, if they feel like somebody else would uh, would buy it, obviously, at a, at a nice, attractive price. But if they feel somebody would uh, would do that and give it a second life, then it's probably suitable for a donation. And like you said, this is the second year, but looking at some of the numbers from last year, uh, this was not only great in that the sales and making money for diabetes and diabetes research, but you kept a lot of stuff from going into the landfill. We did. We uh, we tracked it, and last year we did about 7 million pounds. That's kind of the way we tend to measure these things. Uh, 7 million pounds of uh, of items uh, across the board over that 40-day period. So we're really happy with that. Um, and uh, in part due to the to the good promotion that uh, that people helped us do with it, and we're we're hoping to beat that record this year because uh, you 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 also brought up another great benefit besides it helping to generate money for much needed research for things like helping people affected with diabetes and helping kids with type one diabetes go to camps across the country. Um, it also uh, keeps things out of landfill and gives them again that second life. So multiple benefits here. So how do people then, once they've put their box aside and they've been collecting their 40 items, what do they do with it at the end? Yeah, so you've got some options. Uh, and of course, if somebody doesn't want to do the full 40 days, of course, we'd be happy if they did it for 30 days. But, you know, 40 days is the uh, campaign idea, of course. But um, they can very uh, easily just go to our website, so declutter.diabetes.ca, um, and they can find in their local area uh, whether it's a, a bin that they could uh, drive to, uh, if it's close by and do a bin drop off, those are just textiles that we accept at bins. Um, or they may want to uh, look and schedule a household pickup. We do household pickups in many, maybe neighborhoods across the Vancouver area. Um, and people can look that one up and find out uh, when the next one might be in their area. And if they're happy to, uh, to set things aside and wait for that pickup date, uh, we'll come right to your doorstep. Can you tell us more about how successful it was last year? Well, yeah, as I said, uh, we, we did about 7 million pounds, um, which uh, to give you a general sense for, for Diabetes Canada, um, we, uh, we're one of the largest uh, in the uh, secondhand uh, household uh, item industry. Uh, we do about 100 million pounds nationally wow. uh, in any given year. Um, and so, uh, so this campaign of uh, 7 million was obviously... Uh, a very meaningful, significant uh, portion of what we're able to generate uh, in any given year. You know, you talked about those socks with the holes in them. Do you get a lot of junk? (laughs) (laughs) Well, so, you know, there is some, you know, of course, um, there's a whole sorting uh, part to the industry that does happen. Um, I would say our partners deal with that sorting part. So they would know better. We, we will just pick it up and people will you know put it typically inside of a green garbage bag and knot it up. So we don't inspect it at point of pickup. We just pick it everything up in good faith. Um, and we'll drop it off to our partner who will go through and do that sorting. But yeah, they, they will tell us that uh, from time to time they, 
they uh, will have some things that clearly are not resellable. But that's, you know, that's just part of it. And uh, for the most part, uh, uh, everybody does a great job of pulling things out that they believe could have a second life. And Sean, can you tell us again uh, the money, the donations, and where it actually goes with Diabetes Canada? Because I, I understand it's research. It's also uh, children will benefit from this. So where does the money go? Yeah, that's right. And again, uh, I would encourage anybody, if they want to get really some good information, uh, we publish all of that at uh, the uh, diabetes.ca uh, site so that you can think all the uh, read about all of the activities that go on. There's, there's just some fantastic Canadian-based research that we will put this, these dollars towards uh, that is very well vetted by the medical community. Um, and they'll go to all sorts of things from, you know, how do, we, how do we help people deal with either type 1 or type 2 diabetes on a daily basis? Um, how can uh, we help, uh, you know, find cures or help people mitigate or live better for those who are affected with it? Um, as you mentioned, we also will help subsidize kids who go to type 1 diabetes camp, which are fantastic experiences for kids who are type 1 uh, diabetes because they're at a camp where everybody is like that. So they're amongst their peers and they all get to have fun at camp, but they can all relate to each other and understand that uh, you know, living life with, uh, with diabetes, whether it's uh, type 1 where you're you know, uh, lacking insulin or if it's type 2, Either way, um, you know, you've got to live uh, a smart, careful lifestyle. So these camps are fantastic uh, opportunities for, for kids to, uh, to have fun, but to learn how to live with uh, the disease. All right. Well, it's a great initiative, and I'm sure a lot of people will be decluttering and helping out. Sean, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for speaking with me.